BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm really going to miss celebrating my birthday with you, but I'll save you a piece of cake. I'll freeze it. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J bonus interview is brought to you in part by the Chicago Reader and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J. Oh, there's the brown line. Take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it is, what is today's date? Tuesday, December 22nd, 2020. The brown line roared by. I turned the heat off. What a, what a high price operation we run here. We got the heat going in the attic. The brown line roaring by, being driven by Mayor Pete. Since he got the transportation secretary gig, he's now driving the brown line. And poor Rahm has lost another gig. Uh, That voice at the outset was the mayor of Highland Park. One of the most unintentionally funniest bits uh, we have had to deal with on the Ben Jarofsky show. The... um, Public service messages put out by various mayors in the Chicago area uh, urging people not to get together with their families for Thanksgiving because that, of course, would spread the, uh, the virus. So you must not see your family members at Thanksgiving. And some of the worst acting I've ever seen or heard in my entire life uh, as various mayors, including our very own Mary Lor- Mayor Lori Lightfoot, pretended they were having phone conversations Uh, when they were just talking on the phone. Uh, The headline in today's paper, which will be relevant to the conversation we're about to have with our distinguished guest, says, uh, from today's sunshine, police botched 2019 raid put on desk duty while COPA investigates. Oh, police in botched 2019 raid put on desk duty while COPA investigates the ongoing story of Mayor Lori Lightfoot, the city of Chicago, and the police raid on Anjanette Young's home. We've been talking a lot about it. And I'll probably have a conversation or two about it with our distinguished guest who's uh, waiting to come on. So without further ado, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Don't you, aren't you supposed to introduce your distinguished <laughs> guest, Ben? How distinguished am I if I have to introduce myself, really? I mean, come on. Let's let's get down to it. This is Mick Zumpy, a friend of Ben Perofsky's show. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I do make my guests work really hard in the Ben Jarofsky show. I mean, come on, man. Is that because you're, not, you're, you're struggling to keep track of them all at this stage of the year? I don't blame you. It's... Late in 2020, it's been quite a run uh, here, but uh, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I get my distinguished guest, uh, who are you anyway? Uh, my distinguished guest, old, what's his name? Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself, okay? Then I get to write the it down and make sure I got it right, uh, right? Uh, and then sometimes it's a trick, not in your case, I know how to pronounce Mick and Dumkey. But uh, in some cases, I'm a little unsure of the guest's pronunciation. So I get the guest to say it. Like, I just had a, a Dave Zirin on, who's a sports writer. And I wasn't sure if it's Zirin or Zirin. So I go, oh, I'll have my distinguished guest introduce himself. And then, Mick, I promptly forgot it after he said it. So it was like I hadn't yeah, done it. I, 
I understand. I understand. Uh, so he, yes, McDumkey. You, you have the train going off in the background. I have a landline that just uh, rung, and uh, of course, this is this is the nature of landlines these days. Nine out of ten calls are uh, you know from telemarketers or whatever we don't want to hear from. Um, anyway, I dispatch with that. Yeah, so uh, as I am a distinguished guest, I want to focus on this conversation. Yes, this distinguished guest. The last time he was on the show, he was discussing Bruce Springsteen. He really covered the waterfront with Mick Uh He was discussing Bruce Springsteen. Uh, before that, he was explaining why he would never going to watch another football game again. Uh, we'll see if he's made good on that vow. That that is actually not what I said. <laughs> but go ahead, we'll, we'll get into it. Okay. <laughs> Uh, and uh, in the coming months, he doesn't know this, we are going to do uh, the interview, the conversation we've been talking about forever, and I was geared up for it last night, um, and that is to list the greatest records of 1971. Mick and I are trying to figure out conversations that we could have about things we care about that will guarantee nobody else will care about. <laughs> we did Bruce Springsteen. We did Bob Dylan. <laughs> now we're going to do the greatest records of 1971. And um, uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, that, w- that was an amazing year for records. Amazing. Uh, perhaps the best year in uh, album history of the rock era. Um, and then we're not just talking. I know you and I both have diverse enough tastes. We're not just talking about, you know, straight up classic, so-called classic rock. We're not just talking about old white guy rock, although I do like plenty of that, as I know you do, too. But there are so many other great records that year. But we'll save that, save for, that, that for that one. Yeah. Uh, but last night I was yeah. listening to uh, Pieces of Man by Gil Scott Heron, which is definitely on my list of great records of 1971. I'm not sure if it's on mixed list. We'll see when we do uh, the list. Great album, by the way. Well, it, it depends on how long the list goes. It's on my list. <laughs> if you're talking on my top 10, it's probably not on my top 10, but it's it's definitely on my list and, and certainly on my radar. I, too... Really love that album. Yeah. All right, very good. We'll move on. Uh, we agree on, and how about that? Uh, we'll yeah. hold off because we don't want to give too much of it away. A lot to talk about. I have a whole <laughs> list of things uh, to discuss, but let's get started uh, with Mayor Lori Lightfoot. And this is the big news story of the last week. A little shout out to uh, Gregory Pratt over the Chicago Tribune uh, and Dave Savini over at uh, WBBM Channel 2. It was Savini who broke the story uh, with the footage of the raid on Anjanette Young's house where the police uh, uh, knocked down her door, uh, handcuffed her. She was naked and wouldn't listen to her where she made the obvious point that they had gone to the wrong house for the raid. And Gregory Pratt has done so much great reporting for the Tribune, uh, just really keep trying to keep Lori Lightfoot honest. I will now read to you the quote, Mick, that I've read to every single guest that's been on the show to talk about this. This was a, a press statement issued by Mayor Lori Lightfoot. I will not allow her to walk away from this press statement. It was issued Tuesday, December 15th uh, at 8.30 p.m. When you hear this press release, you realize how much has changed in the last week. This is Lori Lightfoot's statement on the CPD body-worn camera footage. Today, I became aware of an incident involving Ms. Anjanette Young from February 2019 before I became mayor, and I saw a video today for the first time. I had no knowledge of 
of either until today. I had very had a very emotional reaction to what was depicted on the video, as I imagine that many people did. And uh, dot, dot, dot. Since this matter is the subject of litigation and an open COPA investigation, I will have no further comment. There was Lori Lightfoot's announcement a week ago. Uh, since then, Mick, she's had quite a bit to say about it for someone who's not going to have any further comment about a case that's uh, <laughs> being investigated by COPA. So much to unpack here. Uh, you've been covering police, covering police issues and um, going back to the daily years. Mick, I, I hesitate to say this. Uh, I've said it to you privately, but I, I hesitate, hesitate to say it publicly. This is as bad as anything, in my humble opinion, that Mayor Rahm uh, ever executed uh, in terms of police and community relationships. Just the changing, shifting uh, position of the mayor, the um, cover-up of what went down, uh, and then the subsequent uh, trying to reverse everything with a public relations, uh, I don't know, display, spectacle. Uh, it, it, it's almost if, as though it's from the Rahm Emanuel or Kwame McDonald uh, playbook. Uh, what's your general attitude about the whole thing? Well, it's, it's bad, and I agree with you in the sense that um, why are we going through this again? I mean, I thought that everyone uh, – understood the failures of the Laquan McDonald case, uh, not just the initial, obviously the initial shooting incident, but what followed for a, a more than a year afterward. And so to be here again, having some of the same conversations, seeing some of the same things happening, and it's, it really is mind boggling, especially since um, as uh, everyone has been discussing and reminding each other, uh, reminding the mayor herself that uh, she ran as a reformer in part in response to Mayor Emanuel and some of the uh, the way that his administration, his administration handled the Loquan McDonald case in the aftermath. Um, I don't know if I want to get in the business of comparing what one's worse or the other. I mean, you know, a teenager ended up dead with the Loquan McDonald thing and um, so I, it's hard to say anything's worse than that. It also, just in terms of the lack of disclosure and the uh, attempts to bury the video, you know, that went on for more than a year before it jumped for quite there, except that, um, again, lessons should have been learned, and we're all sitting here wondering, would anybody even uh, pay attention to what? went on the first time around with the Laquan stuff. You know, why are we doing this all over again? Make my uh, reigning theory is, and I'll get your reaction to this. Uh, again, I may have shared this to you in private conversation, uh, is that it's coming obvious to me anyway, that Mo uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, brings to her uh, mayoralty uh, her background and her background as a, uh, a uh, corporate lawyer, I've done a lot of criminal defense work on behalf of uh, corporate uh, defendants. And it just seems to me, I say this over and over again, that the city's response uh, to uh, Anjanette Young's and her lawsuit on uh, the request to see the tape is much like a, a corporate defense law firm would do uh, if it was defending its client. And that would just to be counterattack without mercy, uh, try to shred all uh, sh uh, 
credibility that the plaintiff has <clears throat> and to, of course, use uh, every uh, means at their disposal to bury uh, the plaintiff in all kinds of uh, court proceedings so that they either run out of money or run out of patience uh, or lose uh, in a ruling by a judge. It seemed 101 of how uh, corporate uh, uh, lawyers behave and uh, it's only when it became obvious to the public uh, that she was sort of picking on the um, uh, Anjanette Young that they flipped. Uh, do you have a similar feeling about it? I do, although I'd add that I don't know if this started under Lori Lightfoot with the city law department. I mean, I think that um, you know, its default reaction has been to try to, you know, minimize the city's exposure to lawsuits, you know, and one would think that the ultimate way to minimize that is to uh, fix the, the many issues that ail the police department, um, because that's the leading department, of course, that ends up, um, you know, in litigation and ends up with uh, expensive settlements or, uh, you know, verdicts against it um, that, that cost taxpayers money one way or the other. Uh, but, you know, I think that this has gone on for a very long time, certainly since I've been watching, as you said, back to the Richard M. Daly years, um, you know, I think this is just a default reaction. So I, I, I don't have I think probably the, the indictment of Mayor Lightfoot at this point in time is that she promised a new way of doing business and it hasn't been delivered. She hasn't delivered on that promise. And, um, but whether this started with her, these tactics to try to essentially beat, uh, people filing lawsuits against the city into submission to wear them down. So they'll take a settlement. You know, I think that is standard practice here and it's probably standard practice around the country and a lot of other places too. People are trying to minimize, that's part of the process. People try to minimize what they are going to end up having to pay. And at a certain point in time, judgments are made that, uh, you know, okay, we're willing to pay this much. If you won't take this, then we're going to take it to, you know, a trial or whatever. But that's what the whole settlement process is. It's pretty ugly though to see. And in this case, you have to take a step back and say, uh, the dignity of, you know, the victim, um, was that ever even a thought? And apparently it wasn't. And I think that's the point that you're making. Yeah. If they, I, I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, the same thing was with LaCroix McDonald. I, you and I probably had this conversation. An argument could be made that, uh, Mayor Rahm and his, uh, lawyers were attempting to limit the amount of money the city was obviously going to have to pay to the LaGuan McDonald family. So they were being good fiduciaries. An argument could be made. Absolutely. I mean, wow. Sorry to jump in real quick. I mean, Tim Novak and I wrote a story when I was at the Sun Times, the initial demand from uh, the attorneys for LaGuan McDonald's family was I believe $16 million. They wanted a million dollars per shot. That was their initial demand. And then that eventually got lowered to what was it, four million or something, somewhere in that or range. Or say five million or whatever, yeah. Yeah, four or five million, somewhere in that range, um, which is still a lot of money, but like sixteen million to five million. So I think that you know, in some ways, it just seems incredibly cold to us where you're talking about people who've gone through this kind of uh, trauma, and in, in 
the case of Laquan McDonald, a fatal uh, encounter. And um, you're talking, you're making it sort of a numbers game. Uh, but on the other hand, um, I, I think that that is what they see as their duty in some ways to, is to protect the city and protect taxpayers. They, and then they just, uh, if they were honest about it, just imagine this world. Uh, if Lori Lightfoot got up and said, yes, uh, we uh, were playing hardball uh, with Anjanette Young, but we were doing that on behalf of you taxpayers we're trying, because we're trying to limit the amount of money you would be paying in tax uh, in taxes uh, for this uh, police raid. So you're welcome. Imagine that as a response uh, from our mayor. What do you think? How do you think that would play? <laughs> I think a lot of people would be rightfully outraged. On the other hand, there would be um, some who find it refreshing, just the fact that there would be some candor involved, which seems to be in short supply at the moment. Uh, you know, it's interesting, Ben. I remember um, that I believe it was early in Rom's administration under a new corporation council where uh, they were declaring they had this strategy where they were going to play tougher with lawsuits and not just big higher what end up being high profile lawsuits you know lawsuits like the one with uh, Ms. Young and you know with Laquan McDonald involving Laquan McDonald's family where it's clear the city is going to really pay a lot but most lawsuits of course are not like that they're not as cut and dry and they're usually for lower amounts but they add up because there's just the volume of them is so great and so I remember the city at different points has, has basically said we are going to fight more of these lawsuits instead of settling them so early. And that's like a calculation they have. Of course, the longer you take to settle something, the more you've spent in costs with your own lawyers. In some cases, the city uses outside lawyers. They bring in to help on, on you know, certain cases. So the, the tab is running, you know, um, and that's an equation that they always go through. And I think it's always shifting. So, uh, you're right. If someone came out and actually explained how that work, um, people would at least know what's going on in the backdrop. On the other hand, it's probably not the time. I mean, probably you can get rid of that. It's not the time to be coming out and talking about like, you know, saving a dollar here, a dollar there when a woman was humiliated and uh, put through, you know, what, what happened with in this raid. Um, and one quick other point, um, the alderman where I live, uh, Maria Haddon in the 49th Ward, I don't know if you saw this at the city council meeting, um, I guess it was last week, right? Uh, time really flies. The, the, at the city council meeting last week, she voted no on a settlement for the, the uh, teenager who was uh, roughed up, I think it was at Marshall High School. Yeah. Remember that? that? That was a profile case. So they finally... It came before the city council to vote on the settlement that it had been worked out between the city lawyers and her lawyers. And uh, Maria Haddon said, no, I think she deserves more money, which is like, you know, she's probably right. On the other hand, you know, it's like, what's your job as the, as the alder person? Is your job to look out for the city's bottom line or is your job to speak out in, in favor, you know, in defense of this victim and say, well, we actually whittled this award down more than we should have. We, we negotiated it down 
you know, more than is just. That's exactly what she was saying. I think it's really interesting. It's an interesting conversation. And so there's two things going on, I think, to summarize here. There's the, as you said, the fiduciary duty of our elected officials. And then there's the, uh, the sense of justice and, and you could say even a, a moral duty to people who, uh, especially those who are you know, wrongfully victimized by the, the city and, and the police department. And if you go too far on the side of the fiduciary duty, you end up doing what uh, Lori Lightfoot's administration had done up to now uh, on the Anjanette Young case and what Le- Mayor Rahm did with Laquan McDonald. Uh, you try, you fight him like hell to see if you can get him to drop out. Then you do a quick settlement to see if you can make him go away. And then the final process you fight like hell to conceal the evidence so that there is no further prosecution, uh, there's no embarrassment. And then the ultimate result of all that, Mick, as you know, is that there's no tremendous incentive on the part of the police to change their behavior. And, and so if you bury right. the case, exactly. yeah. you perpetuate it. Yeah, and I think that happens when you take, I mean, you, you do have to take each case one at a time. There's, the details are unique to each, but you're, you're totally right, Ben. When you end up having this assembly line system of this is just the way it's done. We fight, we fight, we fight, we negotiate, we settle. Um, sometimes it's part of the discovery process in the lawsuit or part of the settlement talks. Conditions are, are um, imposed by the parties or by the court on the evidence who gets to see it, you know, and I think that be easily becomes a crutch as obviously it has been in this instance. And it was in the Laquan McDonald case where the claim was made, Oh, we can't release this because of this court order. Well, where there's a will, there's a way. I mean, you know, it's not necessarily the judge shot down the city's request to reveal this evidence in either of these cases. It's that the city, you know, didn't make the effort to do that. It starts to sound at a certain point in time like Trump and his tax returns. You know, I, I can't release them because blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, no, you can't release them because you don't want to release them. You know, if there's a city policy to release evidence and video in particular in these kinds of cases, then you find a way to do it, period. Yeah. Um and that gets into uh, an issue that you raised, uh, the whole notion of transparency uh, in uh, uh, various administrations. I didn't think it would still be an issue because, as you know, the f- previous mayor, uh, Mayor Rahm, pledged, pledged McDonkey to run the most transparent and open government in the history of Chicago. <laughs> then he, I, I seem to recall that. Yeah, yeah I, I, I do. That, that does ring a bell. I seem to recall uh, writing about that quote along the way. Yeah. Um, and then this mayor, of course, uh, promised she was going to uh, really do this time. Really, really, really. And actually, even at her press conference yesterday, she said, I hope um, I hope everyone uh, knows by now that I am all in favor of transparency. And you and I have joked through the years, even though it's not really a joke, about like you know some politicians' use of the word transparency is itself quite transparent, which is to say they don't believe in it, but they know that it's important to throw around as a term. Um, 
And I would add to that now, I think that the latest uh, term in the overused political lexicon is uh, accountability and accountable. And um, I say this uh, making fun of myself a little bit because I work for an organization, ProPublica, where that's, you know, one of its taglines. We do accountability journalism. We hold the powerful to account. You know, you hear this from a lot of uh, journalists who write about public policy or do investigative reporting. Um, but I think it's one of those phrases that very quickly is is losing its uh, heft, losing its meaning altogether because everyone's throwing it around. Lori Lightfoot is throwing it around certainly in the last week. Um, I had to laugh a, a week or two ago when the White Sox signed um, a new pitcher and he was quoted as saying that he and the other pitchers on the White Sox were going to hold each other accountable. And I was just like, oh, it's, it's just everything. You know, it's not it's, it's not the White Sox pitching staff. They're holding each other accountable. There you go. The, one of the buzzwords of the day. Yeah, uh, everybody's holding everybody accountable. And somehow nobody's accountable. We'll get into uh, the whole notion of accountability in this case. When I uh, in a little while, when I note that the uh, person being held accountable for this matter is the former corporation counsel, Mark Flesner, who uh, had to give up his job. He resigned. Somehow or other, his boss is unaccountable, uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. But before we leave transparency to go to accountability, let's go back to transparency uh, for the moment. This notion that the city is going to be transparent, uh, and then they fight like hell on freedom of information requests. Uh, one of the things that Gregory Pratt has done an outstanding job uh, at the Tribune, I'm going to give my um, hats off to them. He's just keeping a, a running tab of all the uh, transparency battles uh, that, with Mayor Lori Lightfoot. One of my favorite themes, make you know, how FOIA law is used uh, to subvert its very purpose, which is to uh, force government to be transparent. Uh, they put you to hell to get the, the documents, and then you probably don't get all the documents you want uh, and, and so forth. Mayor Lawyer Lightfoot, uh, what kind of, what kind of uh, judgment would you pass on her in terms of the way she deals with FOIA requests? Well, I think it varies widely by department has been my experience um, to this point. I think, you know, the police department has real issues, as uh, we've been discussing here. But um, the volume of requests that come into the police department is just way higher than any other department, probably in the state of Illinois, uh, to be honest with you. But, you know, that's their job is to handle these requests. And they have not done it very efficiently or effectively. So you will often wait still to this point, you will wait for several weeks. Um, they will ask for extension after extension on, on FOIA requests, which, you know, as you know, Ben, it's supposed to be, you're supposed to get a response back within a week. And so, uh, but sometimes the response will be, we need more time. So they'll do that. And then at the end of several weeks, after delay, 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 they'll say, oh, we don't have it or we can't give it to you. And it's like, well, you should have just told me that on day two, instead of doing this, you know, over, stretching this out for weeks and wasting my time, then it looks like it's a deliberate effort to uh, just conceal everything. And in some cases it probably is, but I think actually in a lot of cases it's just, incompetence. They just have not figured out how to handle the volume of requests that they get. And that's at the police department. Other departments have, I found to be more responsive. Um, 
So I think there's a wide range within city government as there is in other government agencies. One thing that the mayor talked about yesterday, which I would uh, love to see her follow through on and we'll be watching to see if she does is just posting more information, making it more available so that we don't have to go through the FOIA process. Uh, there was a time you and I remember back in the dark ages where uh, lo and behold, you just picked up the phone and called a at a city agency and you said, give me the information about what happened. Now, you know, we could sit here and talk about where you're being spun, whatever, but you know, you got the information. And I think about the police department, there was a time where you could call the news affairs agent and say, um, I'm trying to find out what happened, the incident here, and they would give you all the information that they claim to have at that point in time. Uh, my experience is now basically everything you have to ask for in a FOIA, anything substantive you have to ask for a FOIA. And it shouldn't be that way. So uh, regular stuff that's routinely FOIA'd, whether it's by reporters or other members of the public, the city should just make it available online so that nobody has to bother with the FOIA process. It'll make it easy for city officials too, as well as uh, you know citizens out here trying to find out how their government works. I'm with you 100%, absolutely. And yet, as I said many times, Mick, uh, information is power. So the more information the mayor hoards, the more power she has, and the more desperate reporters get. Uh, and it's just a very perverse game going on with reporters. I'm just talking about here in Chicago. I'm not even talking about Trump's, you know, maligning reporters as enemies of the state. I'm not even talking about, like, far removed from Iran where they kill journalists, you know, or Russia where they imprison them. I'm just talking about just the routine way in, like, the disdain, the obvious disdain that City Hall, the mayor's office, has for working journalists uh, make it's been this way. It's not. It didn't begin with Lori Lightfoot. Not, but it hasn't changed. Rom's office had that disdain. Daly's office had that disdain. We'll get into your uh, exchange. Oh, yeah. yeah, you know it is. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like these people are like Trump before Trump. I don't. I don't know. Like, why do they think they <laughs> they get out of it? Go. You know what I'm saying? Well, I I, I think that um, there's a few things probably happening. I mean, first of all. Um, as you were saying that, I was just recollecting when Richard M. Daly, his big transparency move was that he was going to start uh, posting everyone's FOIA requests online. Not the information people were asking yeah. for about how government works, but their actual requests for the information and the, you know, to try to uh, basically uh, unveil, you know, disclose not how city government works, but how reporters work. And throwing it back in them. Okay, you know, that's fine. That's legal and all that. But it's just like such a little petty cheap shot, you know, kind of thing. Um, and so that's the mentality. Why do they do it? I think there's probably a couple of reasons. I think that um, in some cases they think it's, uh, they can score political points that way. They think that um, they'll look tough or by making it appear that, um the journalists are just being nags or worse. They're annoying. They're people that we don't really like. All after is dirt. You know, they think that maybe they can score some points. And in some cases they do. I mean, we, we, we know that Trump, um, by attacking the so-called mainstream media, uh, you know, has 
appears to have scored a lot of points to some of his uh, followers. Um, I think the other thing, though, is just people get frustrated. I mean, being mayor is a tough job, you know, and things, you know, in 2020, nobody's plans have gone the way they've unfolded. And if you're a political leader, I mean, it's just a total, uh, it's just a total mess. Uh, You don't have money to spend, which is the thing that elected officials love to do. Um, You know, we've had racial unrest here, we've had looting, Uh, she's been attacked for being too lax, and she's attacked for going after, uh, you know, for for swinging to the right after the looting. Um, You know, it's like she got her, she was asking, trying to enforce these stay-at-home advisories and orders, and then you know, comes out, she got her own, went out to get her own hair done. I mean, no, it's been a rough year. And, uh, and then you have these reporters asking you all these questions and you don't want to talk about it anymore. I think sometimes they just get pissed off. I just think it's as simple as that. Well, that, uh, of course, uh, that brings me up to one of my favorite anecdotes that I'm sure McDunkey's really tired of uh, telling, but I'm going to force him to tell it again. Uh, the, his exchange with Mayor Daly, uh, and uh, it, it had a mini parallel. Uh, Lori Lightfoot had her own uh, burst of irritation at uh, the aforementioned Gregory Pratt. Uh, in your case, Mick, uh, Mayor Daly threatened to shoot you, as I recall, uh, with a musket. Am I, am I right in my uh, reminiscence about that? <laughs> he, 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 he was going to shoot me with the gun and stab me with the musket, with the um, bayonet attached to the end of, of the musket. Yes. So um, he was having a press conference about uh, gun policy and, and had this table full of weapons that he said had been seized off the street and you know we we'd gone through another bout of violence um unfortunately that's continued and i just asked him how effective uh the gun law in chicago was at the time and he got really got really pissed and tried to sound like he was joking it was one of those sort of you know haha this is really funny but there was like real meanness to it and and yes, Ben, he uh, threatened to shove the bayonet up my rear end and to fire off a couple of rounds. And then he uh, he giggled about it, sounding a little bit like Beavis and Butthead. Because um, yeah. it was funny, I guess, to do that. And, um, you know, it was like everyone in the press conference just went quiet. You know, everyone was like, wait a second, did that just happen? So... What you're saying is, yeah, Lori had her own tantrum. There were no guns available, and uh, hopefully if there were, she would have grabbed one and made that kind of a quote-unquote joke. But she did go off on uh, Greg Pratt, and I think Dave Savini, the CBS reporter who has been working hard on these raid stories, and um, basically questioned uh, you know, Greg's integrity and said that he was irresponsible and all this stuff that really, uh, to me, and I think to every other journalist who was paying attention to that, this was way outside the bounds of napping at a reporter or telling him that his facts wrong or whatever, this irritations. This was like a direct personal attack. And um, it really, I think it backfired on her. And um, while there are people certainly suspicious of us journalist types, you know, it just looked ugly. And she, uh, she and her team, realized that and the next day issued an apology. So we got to give her credit for that part of it. 
she did apologize. Uh, something Mayor Daly didn't do in terms of you. I just want to point that out. So Sounds just Sounds think about how much improvement that uh, sort of suggests <laughs> that have occurred. Uh, I'm talking to being a journalist at now, at least now, 24 hours later, we have a chance of getting an apology for it. So yeah, that's, that's good. We are progressing as a city. What a, what a civilization we are, city of Chicago. We're not really progressing so much on uh, the accountability and transparency part. But if a mayor insults a reporter, uh, at least at, the, at this moment in time, the mayor will apologize. Uh, and so we have to uh, give Lori Lightfoot credit. Boy, every time I do something like that, I give somebody credit for doing something that is just part of routine. You, you would expect them to do. You, you got to like, you know, Mick, I'm just on the side here. Uh, Adam Kinzinger is a congressman from the 16th Congressional District, which is a, he's a Republican. The district is just uh, south of uh, the border with Wisconsin. Anyway, uh, he is, uh, you know, a conservative Republican, but he has spoken out uh, against Donald Trump uh, and MAGA's insistence that the election was fraudulent. And I gave him credit for that, okay? And I immediately was criticized by my dear friends of the Democratic persuasion. Ben, why would you give this guy credit for anything? He's a worthless for doing what is what is yeah for stating that a fact is actually a yeah. fact. This is how low we've gone. Yeah, you know my Democratic friends do raise a good point. I mean, I had a whole discussion today, Mick, about William Barr, the Attorney General, and yeah. uh, with Jim Coogan, and we just were breaking down all the the sins of William Barr as Attorney General. He's probably the worst Attorney General in my lifetime. Although I could always make a compelling argument for John Mitchell, and. Um, you know, then we got into the issue like, well, at the very end of it, after committing all these sins on behalf of Donald Trump as a, uh, essentially being the court gesture to this malignant madman who's running the country. He says he opines, well, I see no evidence that there was fraud in the election, so I don't think we need a special counsel. And we don't need a special counsel for Hunter Biden. And, and, and like, people, what am I supposed to do, make applaud him at this stage? Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I know. I, to me, that's the equivalent of him uh, sending his application materials around to various high-powered law firms, Um you know, he's leaving. He's, he is going to need a job at some point in time. And uh, maybe it's time to not look like you're a total toady for uh, Donald Trump. Um, I don't know. You're totally right. Your bigger point, the fact that uh, things have shifted so much that we are grateful when someone, uh, again, asserts the, the, you know, the truth is the truth. And, doesn't do something totally haywire crazy and uh, acts like a competent, reasonably competent governing official. Even if we don't like any of their policies, we're like, oh, wow, the person's competent. I don't like anything he or she does, but at least they're competent. I mean, that's where we are. That's where we are at the end of 2020. All right. uh, Let's shift gears and talk about your latest story for ProPublica, an outstanding piece of work, investigative work by Mick Dumke about a piece of property on the 2800 block of West Madison. It used to be Catfish Corner, a restaurant run for many years by former alderman Wallace Davis. Somehow or other, Wallace lost control of the restaurant, and now it's vacant. And I urge people to read the story. if for no other reason, then once again, this is one of Mick's favorite themes in the last uh, the year, just the difficulty for a whole variety of reasons 
to develop uh, poor neighborhoods in the city of Chicago. And it seems more and more, Mick, uh, that the economic development strategy that the city pursues, one that it's been pursuing for many years, is just wait till the neighborhood bottoms out and then you sell it off to developers uh, who can then um, hope to bring in a uh, wealthier uh, group of people to live there. that's sort of my takeaway from uh, all these stories that you've been writing and other uh, ProPublica reporters have been writing. What's your sort of takeaway from this? Yeah, I think you just saved uh, your audience from reading like 8,000 words that uh, my colleagues and I have written over the last several months. Um, you, sadly, I think you're right. I mean, I, I'm not going to say there aren't well-intended people working at the city or the state who want to do something, but the tools at their disposal or, uh, you know, the political will uh, to do something about these places just isn't going to cut it. I mean, the current political will, I should say, um, really hasn't existed. Um, These are hard situations. These are neighborhoods we're talking about. In this case, East Garfield Park, um, for people who uh, don't know all of Chicago's neighborhoods, this is, we're talking about, mile west of the United Center. And um, this is a neighborhood that has experienced population loss, business flight, capital flight, um, and then neglect from every level of government going back decades. And, um, you know, at one point in time, of course, some of these neighborhoods had uh, redlining, so there were official policies in place that, uh, you know, banks employed to keep from lending to people in these communities. And now I think those policies are illegal, but there still are unofficial policies. It's just really difficult for people to get money to do anything, even if they wanted to in some of these neighborhoods. And then what you're mentioning, Ben, the city programs, whether it's the TIF program, you may have heard that before, Ben, program. Um, Or in this case, this story, kind of circles around a new policy that Ron launched, which is called the Neighborhood Opportunity Fund. The idea being you take development fees, fees paid by developers in wealthy areas downtown, and you use it to try to help start up or existing businesses in struggling communities on the south or west sides. Um, But, you know, while this is going to help certain businesses here and there, it's clearly not a program that in any way is going to turn around a neighborhood, um, or even in the case of the story that I wrote about the former Wallace Caffish Corner site at Madison, California, it's not even going to turn around one single boarded up property. It hasn't even been able to do that. So, you know, the tools are just woefully inadequate. And to this point in history, uh, no governing official has basically said, I'm going to make this a priority. We're going to get this done to turn around places like East Garfield. Yeah, and there, uh, by the way, the story was about um, the property and the struggle of the city to develop property in poor neighborhoods. But in the background is, is definitely one of the most interesting and colorful political characters that I have ever met uh, in Chicago. And that would, of course, be Wallace Davis. And uh, I know you know this, Mick, but Wallace and I go way back to the 80s. He, I remember when he was a candidate running for alderman in 1982, got elected in 83. And uh, I, I've always found him uh, just a, a blast to talk to. Uh, and it's funny, like I'm speaking so well of a guy who spent three years in federal prison. Uh, I'm, 
uh, on charges of accepting bribes uh, from a, a, an undercover FBI agent. I've always felt, Mick, that he got kind of railroaded on that case. Uh, that's my own personal bias on behalf of Wallace Davis. Uh, but one of the, I think, benefits of you writing this story is that you got to spend a lot of time with Wallace Davis and ta- spent a lot of time uh, hearing his stories. One of the great storytellers I've ever met. Uh, talk a little bit about Wallace Davis, the character. I think you're absolutely right. He is one of the great political characters here. He's really a nice guy. I mean, I always found a nice guy. So you're right. He's just fun to hang out with. He seems to know everybody on the West side. He knows everybody um, in other places around town. He, um, is one story after another about not only his own political career, but all these other characters going back decades. Um, when doing some research on the history of West Side and some of the properties along Madison Street, I would call Wallace and say, what about this? Oh, yeah, you know, old Italian guy, he owned all these properties on that block, you know, and then the riots happened and then he did this. It's just, you know, he knew all the gangsters. He knew all the property owners, just a guy with... Um, and, and like you said, very valuable, just easy to talk to and a, and a great storyteller. Um, he has encountered some bumps in the road. Uh, we all have, but, uh, Wallace, I think someone else I was talking to recently about the story described Wallace as a Shakespearean character. And I thought that really captured it because, um, you're right. There've been some real highs and some real lows in, uh, Wallace's public life. And that includes, I think the story of this restaurant. And I remember you and I one time on election night, Ben, we went out to um, the old days. We were both working at the Reader. I'm trying to remember which year it was, but it was uh, on election night. We decided we were going to go to Wallace's Catfish Corner and hang out. And it was not a bad choice because um, in addition to getting some grub, uh, there were people coming and going uh, both from the restaurant and then Wallace owned another property across the street. Um, that I think at that time was sort of used as an unofficial headquarters. And even though he was not himself a candidate by, at that point, you know, he was involved in trying to get out the vote for various people and, you know, stuff going on. You're, you felt like you're in the middle of the action on the West side on election night. It was, it was really a lot of fun. We were in the middle of the action on the West side and the year was February. It was February, 2007 mayor Daly, uh, her, his last election. Of course, I was vehemently against mayor Daly. I, uh, voted, uh, for Dorothy Brown. Uh, and I was roundly mocked by one of Wallace's friends. I don't know if you remember this. We're sitting at a table in Catfish Corner and he was like, just ripping me. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, you voted for Dorothy. It was like the funniest thing. I was like, hey man, this guy voted for Dorothy Brown. And it was whole thing. I remember this guy going on this whole riff about how you, you can't beat, it's some, actually something you may have picked up from it. You can't beat somebody with nobody, you know, you know, you can't beat somebody with nobody. You got to run. The guy's giving me grief. I'm like, man, daily sucks. I was like the gist of the conversation. We walk across the street, all those precinct captains in, in the yes. building across the street. Wallace pulls out a wad of cash. Oh my God. <laughs> yes, Mick, it was West Side politics and it's fine. But the part was this everyone making fun of me because I voted for Dorothy Brown. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, that is hilarious. I do remember that now that you brought it yeah. up. Um, and of course, Danny Davis's congressional office was on, uh, if it wasn't then, then it soon after was on the next block. And, um, you know, I, I went for an interview one time with Danny and nobody, his staff couldn't find him. <laughs> and then all of a sudden he's walking down the street like, oh yeah, I saw him. He's hanging out in the corner. Uh, and so that's just the place it was, you know, and um, it's uh, city workers hung out there, people who had been elected officials who no longer were. I remember you interviewed Bob Shaw there one time when he was talking about running for mayor um, a few years ago. So just... It was just that kind yeah. of a place. And, you know, the sad part of the story is that Wallace did lose that and his other uh, commercial properties on Madison Street, I think, through a series of personal financial problems that were um, compounded, if not, uh, you know, just rendered completely out of control by, by bank fraud. Yeah. Um, I do think he was a victim of bank fraud. And so that set this whole thing in motion. And um, like I said, even though some other people got a hold of the property and have claimed they're going to do something with it, and the city announced uh, three and a half years ago it was going to give a grant uh, to this new ownership um, who happens to be a former city water department employee, uh, nothing's happened with the property. It's just still sitting there uh, boarded up. So that's that's where it is. All right, a little shout out to uh, Wallace Davis. Uh, and uh, Mick, we'll close with some sports stuff. I'm going to get you on record as part of the, our great um, prediction game. You said you would participate. Uh, we've been making guests do this, friends of the show, friends of mine. Everybody's weighing in with their predictions. As I speak, we're two days from the start of the season of my beloved Chicago Bulls. Uh, every year I predict the same thing that the Bulls will be NBA champions and there will be a party at Grant Park and I will be there at the party um, and it hasn't really worked out that way Mick, since 1998 but that won't stop me from making the same prediction year after year uh, you on the other hand are much more realistic uh, about the Chicago Bulls and uh, so without further ado Mick Dumkey. How many games do you predict my beloved Chicago Bulls will win this season? Keeping in mind, it's a shorter season, only 72 games in the regular season. How many games will my beloved Chicago Bulls win? 36. I'm going with 36. Whoa! 50-50? I think they're going to – I think I think Donovan um, alone, just a new coach – um, who's experienced, who uh, seems to get the best out of his players at every level. I think that they will um, exceed expectations and uh, finish at or maybe slightly above 500. So I'm going to 36 because I am uh, – that's really optimistic. But I, I think that um, it's very likely some games will probably be nixed along the way. Mm. Um and so I'm going to say that they're going to be slightly above 500. I'll go with 36. Wow. That I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that games being nixed because of COVID that that's a curveball. That's uh, yeah. We, we don't, we don't know if that's, of course, w- would you consider uh, NBA players uh, to be so important to society that they go to the front of the line Get the vaccine. I could make the argument, Nick. I would could make that argument. 
Well, personally, I would have put the, the whole league in front of Lindsey Graham, <laughs> but apparently he uh, he already cut in line and got his. So, you know, what can you say? Touche. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, there's a lot of money involved, so uh, we know how that works. Um, I Listen, I, I we both love basketball. I love basketball at pretty much every level, especially college and um I don't like the NBA same level. Not no probably. I don't. I'm not as big an NBA fan as you are, Ben. But as you know, I have my my spurts, and I really got into it. Um, the playoffs, uh, COVID playoffs. This when was that? I guess that was the summer, right? Um, into October, actually. Yeah. Just yeah. I mean, she's yeah. So um, I'm really looking forward to it, and uh, I like I said, why not? Why not be optimistic about the Bulls? To start I love the season? that. Why, why not? not? And finally, we'll close with this confession time for Mick Dumkey, who's on the show about two months ago. Uh, we were talking about his love for football, and he made a vow that he okay, maybe he didn't say, "I will never ever watch another game," as I might have said at the outset. He strongly was heading in that direction. May have thrown a few words in there, like Lightfoot-esque words to give him a little uh, duck and dodgery in there. Uh, I'm pretty sure I gave myself some duck and dodgery. Yeah, I've, I've learned from the best all these years on the team. <laughs> so uh, um, have you more or less maintained uh, your vow not to pay attention to football? Uh, not entirely. I... I um, I did, I did not, I ended up giving in. I ended up following it a little more than I, uh, I was so disgusted and talked and I just was like fed up that they were the big tenant caved and that they're even playing, let alone all the other stuff associated with the sport, what it does to your bodies at pro level, especially the racism of the ownership and so forth. Um, I have not watched NFL game for several years. So that, my own personal boycott of the NFL is firmly intact. Um, I did, I had give in on college a little bit. I never watched a full game this season. Um, I listened to more than I watched, but I did catch a little bit here and there of uh, my beloved Northwestern Wildcats. And um, so I'll, I'll admit that, um, uh, you know, I guess it was uh, giving in a little bit on some of the things that I was venting about to you on the show earlier. On the other hand, my only defense is, and I think it's a reasonable one at this point in time, is we all have done things in 2020 to try to remain sane. And I just decided <laughs> that, quite frankly, this season was going on whether I followed yeah. or not, and uh, that I was going to um, try to just escape from reality here and there a little bit and watch watch a little bit of football, listen to it. All right, that's not so bad. So I'll say, uh, uh, having listened to that uh, confession from McDumkey, that overall he was far uh, more abiding to his vow not to watch football than Mayor Lori Lightfoot was when she said, and I quote one more time, since this matter is the subject of litigation, I will have no further comment. (laughs) She hasn't stopped commenting about the Antoinette Young case since she issued that. So oh, I'm, I'm glad I, I'm glad I didn't have to face uh, Greg Pratt and Dave Savini over my, uh, <laughs> my footballism. Okay. No, they would be uh, filing FOIA uh, request with your wife, Romana Hussein, a regular on the Ben Tarowski show every Friday saying she threw you under the bus last week, Meg. I just want you to know that she said, I just want you to know. She said, makes me watching football. I'm going, what? 
he what? <laughs> I know. I, I think at one point in time, she actually yelled at me that I had no principles. <laughs> uh, she was irritated about some things, but I happened to be tuning in for, you know, a quarter of Northwestern football. And I was like, no, wait a second. You can hammer me on this. But does that equate to no principles? That's a little rough. <laughs> I uh, I never once believed he would not watch any Northwestern football. He I didn't believe it when the words came out of his mouth. Uh, I, on the other hand, Mick, I do not believe I watched any of it, Northwestern football, but I know I listened to a lot. I really rather actually w- listen uh, to a Northwestern football game on the radio than watch one on TV. And, of course, my number one thing is to go to the games and why and I sure. I'm hoping next year the pa- uh, the pandemic passes in one form or another, and we can start going to Northwestern games again. Um, all right, mix. I'm into that. I'm into yeah. that. St- stay safe and sound. Have a great Christmas and New Year's. We'll talk to you next year. All right. Happy holidays to you and to everybody, all your listeners. Thanks, and to Dennis. Thanks, Dennis. All right, that's the great McDumkey. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.